Um, so we're going to move now into uh, Alice is going to come and speak to us, and this is our um, kind of final one. And she, did, she spoke for three weeks on Genesis, unpacking Genesis one to eleven, and uh, and then thank you so much for putting in some questions. And um, Alice is going to respond to those questions. Over to you. Hi everyone. Yeah, thank you so much for tracking along. It's just been great to be able to share some of the learning that I found immensely helpful over the last year, particularly over the last few months, with us as a community and to process together some of some of these ways of particularly, I think, understanding what the Bible actually is and therefore what it isn't and also how to read it, but particularly looking at those challenging passages in Genesis 1 to 11. And I have some great questions. So I'm going to quickly say the sort of questions that people have brought in. And as I say, we're going to bring a response. If these questions were easy to answer, then someone else probably would have answered them a long time ago. Really good questions. So we've got a number of different themes. We've got the science questions. Based on the seven days of creation, how do we tackle the young earth versus the old earth debate? Is there a way to determine how old the earth is? And is there a way to align it with Genesis? How do we interpret dinosaurs, Ice Age, Stone Age, etc. in the light of what's there in Genesis? Great question. And then moving on, but more particularly around what it is to be human. Is evolution compatible with Genesis? Does it go against the concept of intelligent design or made in the image of God? Great. Then moving a bit more on to how of history. So that's more like science. This is more like history. Um, I thought this is this is the questioner. I thought your explanation of Adam and Eve. Don't forget the Hebrew words written a lot later than the primeval narrative, the garden narratives. Hebrew wasn't invented, so I explained how Adam's human, Eve's life to mean humanity. Really helpful. In the light of this, how do we humanize? Consider the story, the other character, the other characters in the Old Testament. So like Moses, Joshua, etc., are we meant to think of only Jesus being the literal son of God who died for our sins and consider all characters before Jesus as more stories that reveal the nature of God, more like um, identify with God through the story rather than an actual historical person like Gideon, for example? Great question. Then we're moving on to the formation of the Hebrew Bible. When do you think Genesis was written? I love this because we're all now beginning to kind of go, oh, right, okay. It all might have been and looked a bit different to what we thought, which is um, a a very helpful liberating journey I've had as well. Do you think it really was Moses who he's assigned authorship? People talk about the five books of Moses and Moses being a key figure. And so the kind of some some traditions have, have given Moses the authorship of Genesis. I love this. It feels like a very big book to have been written. I suppose he was brought up in the palace court, so he was educated. So, yeah, when do you think the written word was written? So the Hebrew Bible, particularly the Old Testament, in a possible timeline, was it before, during or after the exile? If there was oral tradition, how much were they changed by the writers? Great questions. Then ethics. Uh, the idea that ancient, the, the Israelites, and that there is this Genesis 1 narrative of all humanity made in the image of God, but it was that lost. It, at what point did, did the Israelites lose that and see themselves as somehow more special? Is that, and what about us today? If we feel ourselves we're, we're more special than others, isn't there an, an unethical and potentially dangerous and damaging fallout from that? How do we navigate um, an ethical understanding of we're made in the image of God, the Genesis 1 narrative, recovering that, but also understanding the, the, the what it is to be specifically the people of God? Great question. 
which all of these will have practical applications today, but I think that's very pertinent. And then going more into those garden narratives, the temple imagery. Um, this is a lovely question. I love finding out about the significance of the seventh day in the Genesis 1 narrative, writing about seven days so that people of that time in the ancient Near East would understand that God made the world to be a temple. I wondered if there was any literary construct that showed in a similar way that the Garden of Eden might be symbolic of God's presence. And then wondered if the tree of life planted in the garden was a symbol of Jesus. I love this because this is um, this is a Holy Spirit imaginative way of reading the scripture. We start to see things that maybe we we didn't see before, and that this person's making a connection between the tree of life and the garden. Eat it if we eat the fruit of Jesus. Will that produce the tree of life? Will that produce the fruits of the spirit? The idea of God, uh, Jesus being food and and not living by bread alone, but by the words of God and Jesus being the word. And so the kind of looking to connect different symbolisms, particularly though, is the, the Garden of Eden. Where's the temple imagery there? Can we can we see that as a, a sacred space as well? And then a great one, absolute brilliant problem of evil. Just a few good ones today. Where does the serpent come from? This is in the Genesis 3 Garden of Eden narrative. And who controls the serpent? Fundamentally, if God created the serpent, does that mean that God has a choice between good and evil? Brilliant. And then finally, great finisher, which which we may get to. It may be that this is more of an unravelling and chewing over and processing together over a period of time. But essentially, the practical application. I think the most important question for me today is how does Genesis narrative transform my walk and talk with those that my purpose is to be good news to? Do I really know the significance God has placed in me and his plans to use me to bring about his kingdom on earth? And that's absolutely fantastic. So we will do what we can to get to these. Let's start with the first one. Based on the seven days of creation. So there's a a narrative in Genesis one, which actually has creation in six days and then the seventh day that, that doesn't end. How do we tackle the young earth versus the old earth debate? Is there a way to determine how old the earth is? And is there a way to align it with Genesis? How do we interpret dinosaurs, the Ice Age, Stone Age, etc., in the light of what's there in Genesis? Great. So I think the first thing we need to do is completely disentangle the scientific project from a biblical narrative. They're doing completely different things. And the Genesis 1 talk I gave really presses into what they're doing compared to what the scientific project is doing now. This is really crude, but simplistically, the Genesis 1 narrative is saying who? Not many Elohim, spiritual beings. Elohim aren't everywhere, not polytheism or pantheism, but there's one supreme Elohim. There was nothing like that in the ancient Near East. It was mind-blowing, and it still really informs people's worldviews today. We either believe in God or we don't believe in God, but very few people, particularly in the West, there are other cultures where people still believe in many gods. Essentially, those are the options. There's either one kind of aura out there or being or something, or there's nothing. And that was rooted in the Genesis 1 narrative, which basically began to deconstruct polytheism. Gods are everywhere in the ancient world, or pantheism, God is in everywhere. The spirit of God, the ruach, the breath, is, is hovering over the waters. And the, the, that I didn't go into that, but just, just that really um, speaks against pantheism. God is in everything because the spirit, the ruach, the breath, the wind of God is actually animating everything. It's energizing everything, but it... it, it, it 
he belongs to the distinct person of Elohim. So he's supreme, he's uncreated, unequaled, incomparable Elohim. Absolutely mind-blowing in the ancient world. And the second uh, sort of message is why. So it's the who and the why. Our hyper-materialistic scientific project is really, really focusing on the how, the materiality of the how. But, but the biblical narrative is focusing on the who and the why, because those are going to be transcendent words. So the scientific project isn't one static thing. There are tens of thousands, if not more, scientists in the world and hundreds, if not more, branches of science. It is vast. It's dynamic. It's fascinating. It's the reason one in two of us are here today because of the fruit of of medical intervention. Um, Mortality rates on women in childbirth are one in two die without medical intervention. It's the reason I can speak to you now with the fruits of technology. It is dynamic. It's living. It's gripping. And it's and it is focused particularly on how the material world works. That's its boundary. That's its endeavour. As soon as it goes beyond those boundaries, it's not science. It's a personal opinion or a faith, but it's not science. So if we look at the world and we say, wow, it's vast and complex, there must be a God. That's great, but it's not science. If we look at the world and go, wow, the whole thing happened by a chemical accident, therefore there isn't a God, that's great, but that's not science. All science can do is observe the material realm. That's what it's doing And that's what it always was doing and always will do. And science changes all the time. So we used to think the universe until fairly recently was static. Now we think it's ever expanding. The biblical narrative is not speaking to the changing understanding of the scholarly scientific community because it can't change. It was written once millennia ago. We'll come to the formation of the Hebrew Bible. Speaking into who made everything and why everything has been made, not how. Not, not just because the understanding changes all the time, but because that wasn't the interest of the authors. The interest of the authors was to reveal who Elohim was, the supreme, unparalleled, incomparable creator, and who humans are, all of us, made in the image of God, significant, mind-blowing, to cultural worldviews where only one person, the king, was made in the image of God, and everyone else was made to be slaves to meet the needs of the lesser gods who couldn't be bothered to work for the greater gods and Babylonian myths. So the language as well in the the creation narrative is pre-scientific. It describes God creating everything, but in the pre-creation state, there is still something, according to our understanding, there's a dark desert watery abyss, Genesis 1-2. He overcomes them through very sophisticated, stylized, regal, literary journey through six days. One, two, three, separation. But separation of light from dark. Because God, the ancient world saw light as before the sun. God was light and then the sun comes in day four. But then separating waters above and waters below, that's ancient cosmology. They didn't, it's all intuitive observation. We'd all be the same. You're standing with your feet on the ground. Rain comes up there, but it doesn't come all the time. Therefore, there must be some sort of dome. Sometimes the rain comes. So the rain, waters needed to be separate. Remember, no, nothing's good. It's not not good on day two, but nothing's good. Good day one, not nothing, no comment on day two. But day three, when there's a separation, water and dry land and plants are put on the dry land, two lots of good because the momentum is towards the meaning. The literary sophistication is towards the meaning. 
that humans are designed to flourish on the dry land. So three acts of separation, then four, five and six, three acts of filling. So not only is it an ancient cosmology, but it's also dealing with the unseen realm, something that is beyond scientific endeavour. So day four is an unseen realm narrative. And we're going to, I'm touching on it now because I actually will pick up on it on the question of the serpent now to, to just get the worldview in our heads. So the rakia, the dome, is this kind of hard bronze firmament that, that he, the ancient Near East thought they had the ground beneath them, at the dome above them. Above that was the, sort of the heavens. In that were, were the skies and the, the, the day two narrative of the waters above, the birds are filled up there and the, the fishes go to the waters below. And there are these heavenly beings, day four. They're called the heavenly hosts. They are spiritual beings. This is intense to get our heads round. The sun, the moon, and the stars were worshipped as gods in the ancient world. Highly likely Abraham in the Mesopotamian region was called out of being a moon worshipper. That was common practice. And you can understand it. If you're there, you're, you know, fairly sophisticated urban civilization emerging in the Tigris and Euphrates on the Mesopotamian basin. But you're still, you're pretty much small. You've, you've got your land. You look up. The sky is vast and it's mind-blowing and there are beautiful beings up there. So they are gods. Genesis 1 narrative critiques that ideology but doesn't say they're not spiritual beings. So they're defined as heavenly hosts but not Elohim. They are spiritual beings but they're not like the Elohim, the creator, the unparalleled one. They're not to be worshipped. That, But they are given delegated authority to worship. This is hard to explain but I talked about literary origami of the Genesis 1, 2, 3, separation, 4, 5, 6, filling. So we filled the light and the light and the dark. We filled the birds and the fishes. So day four, day five, we fill the dry land with humans and animals. There is also, so there's a fold between separation and filling. One, two, three, four, five, six. There's also a fold between day four and day six. The two rulers are given delegated authority. So day four, the sun, the moon, and the stars, and they're actually not named that because they're not deified in, in the text. They're just called, they are called though, they, to rule the same word that humans are called to rule the created realm. You have the unseen beings in the heavenly realm called to rule as delegated authorities over the unseen realms. So you have these two realms, the heavens and the earth. Day four, they are given governance over the unseen realm. And you see things, and it, it, the whole of Israelites' festival season, for example, is in the, in the marking of the sacred times that comes up. I'm just trying to give you a taster of what else is probably going on in this narrative so we understand that it's not trying to explain how the earth came into being from a literal mechanical point of view. It's telling us about the boundaries of governance between the unseen realm and the seen realm, and then humans match them. So that where you get a mirroring in the biblical narrative. The seen realm is populated with humans and there's a mirror, there's an unseen realm populated with unseen spiritual beings. Really critical to understanding the whole biblical narrative right up to Revelation to see that unseen realm. So it's not a a scientific endeavour because it is talking about the reality of the unseen realm, something that's beyond the realms of scientific inquiry. I had a little thought, though. Science changes all the time, as we've just discussed. Scientists change all the time. Current scholarly consensus changes all the time. <laughs> Imagine, and we've got the technology now, I think, to control the weather. So I think I think there are kind of clouds that China might have formed over them if they need some rain. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if that develops. In 100 years' time, we all have our own weather systems. 
And we all kind of, I don't know, nations or counties or states, I don't know, now like negotiate who's going to be in charge of their weather system or what weather they're going to have for the farmers, for like the sun tanners, you know, everyone wants their different kind of weather. And whether we'll get to this stage in Britain, in England particularly, and you understand why I'm saying England rather than Britain, where we'll look back at the 20th and 21st century and think it's so primitive that rain ever stopped playing for cricket. That's that's just a little thought I had about potentially 100 years later of technology and how primitive we might think it now that we would just be driven by the weather when we played our cricket. Anyway, our children think it's quite primitive because it's no other sport where rain stops play. We've had to explain why. So you can see that they're, they're just doing two totally different things. Let, let geologists discover the age of the earth. Let archaeologists do their work in terms of the prehistory and, and, and the sociology of civilizations, And let the biblical narratives do the work of telling us who God is, who we are, and how the world really operates in terms of the seen and unseen realm. Is evolution compatible with Genesis? Does it go against the concept of intelligent design or made in the image of God? Absolutely brilliant question. I think this is really personal and personal. I've drawn this out separately because I think there's something about the biblical narrative which, which really sees and values humans as sacred space. We, we get to this imagery in the New Testament where Jesus himself is where heaven and earth come back together. He defines himself as a temple. He defines believers as a temple. We're all made in the Genesis 1 narrative as the image of God. So humans are seen and unseen. We, we are not just physical, material beings. We, we are spiritual beings as well as human beings. And that's the challenge of the, the, the current scholarly consensus over the evolution of humans. So how do we interpret those origins in terms of the biblical narrative? Well, I just think, so firstly, going back to the first answer, I'd really recommend if you want to have just a good, it's a free online classroom and it helps just, it just, I found it by accident and I just found it incredibly liberating and helped me start sort of deconstruct and reconstruct in a very gentle way what the Bible is and how to read it, but particularly the context of the ancient world and that it's a pre-scientific prophetic community that wrote it. The online Bible project classroom seminar, um, it does the Hebrew Bible, introduction to the Hebrew Bible and Genesis 1, the kind of cosmology of Genesis 1, really helpful. And they give, they'll have all sorts of bibliographies for that. So I'd start there. This one, I think this is quite interesting. If, if This is quite an interesting work published in 2019. The genealogical Adam and Eve, the surprising science of universal um, ancestry. And I think really I I mentioned this man, um, this academic scientist, physician, just incredible brain um, in the second talk I gave. But he he kind of identifies this, this problem. Evolutionary science teaches that humans arose as a population sharing common ancestors with other animals. Most readers of the book of Genesis in the past understood all humans descended from Adam and Eve, a couple specially created by God. These two teachings seem contradictory, but is that necessarily so? In the fractured conversation of human origins, can new insight guide us to solid ground in both science and theology? And he disentangles the difference between what it is to be human from, he's a scientist, from the theological understanding and the 
scientific understanding that word and ancestry and particularly the difference between genetics and genealogy. He's a scientist, physician, associate professor of laboratory and genomic medicine at Washington University in St. Louis, where he uses artificial intelligence to explore science at the intersection of medicine, biology and chemistry. And it's particularly either some, this book, which you're welcome to borrow, but also online, he is a Veritas Forum speaker and blogs at Peaceful Science. There's just a lovely spirit of partnership, collaboration, really trying to wrestle with these questions in an honouring and respectful way. So for those who really want to pin uh, down this, this critical issue of the, the kind of current scholarly consensus around the origins of humans in terms of our material origins and then the biblical narrative that were made, sacred spaces made in the image of God, I think he's probably helpful. Personally, I'm, I'm happy to hold both because I think they're doing two different things. The person in front of me is significant and made in the image of God. I, I just know that and I'm, I'm happy to, to walk that. So then we get to, so I hope we understand now. Please look at Genesis 1 talk again if we, if I've been too quick in trying to disentangle science and the biblical narrative. But the biblical narrative is, is, it, there are three things. Um, it's an ancient Mediterranean text. And this is Michael Heiser. Absolutely brilliant. I'll mention him in a minute. It is pre-scientific in terms of its understanding of cosmology, its understanding of reproduction, and its understanding of the seat of the intellect, the writers were. And in that worldview, everything is spiritual. It really navigates, it really speaks of an unseen realm. So that is the narrative we're looking at when we're reading the Bible. And we need to be good travellers, go over a bridge to a very (laughs) country a long way away in a different language and, and listen to what the biblical authors are trying to say. We believe it's a divinely inspired word that God speaks to us through it still today, even though it's not primarily initially for us, because we believe God's speaking a transcendent word about who we are, who he is and why we're here. And that still stands today. I also think the weakness of putting all our eggs in the basket of the interpretation of the scientific endeavour, for example, culturally saying, therefore, there is no God, is we are totally naive to the reality of the unseen realm and therefore the problem of evil, which I'm going to come to in the last question. So there are strengths in our current um, scholarly consensus, which are mind-blowing. As I said, the understanding of medicine and technology has made our lives incomparably. Just we're alive, for a start, we live much longer, and, and and, 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 you know, there are so many aspects to our lives, for example, health, that we're grateful for. But the weaknesses is there's a, a lack of understanding. Well, there isn't. It's just not the boundaries of the scientific endeavour. But it's something that biblical narrative still speaks to today. It's the reality of the unseen realm. So the formation of the Hebrew Bible. When was Genesis written? Again, I've actually done a chart for this on the Genesis 1 talk, so I haven't got it up again on the PowerPoint, but if you look at the PowerPoint slides on the Genesis 1 talk, absolutely brilliant from, if you look at, um, it come, this, I, this comes from the Genesis 1 free online classroom through the Bible Project through Tim Mackey, but essentially you have this, this sequence of events. You have the events in history that actually happened, and I'm going to come to that in a minute on the on the question of how are these these figures stories or are they historical then you have the oral traditions about them as was mentioned here in the in the perceptive question and and particularly some early songs uh deborah for example 
there's a, a song where people who know the difference between ancient Hebrew and ancient ancient Hebrew know that that was, was one of the songs in De- Deborah's song in Judges that would have been a very early tra- oral tradition of, of passing down a story. And if we all know that, if we, we are, think oral tradition is quite weak, partly because we don't need it, we rely on um, technology to remind us of anything we need to know. So we don't need to use our memory in that way but also because we're, we're literate, so we write stuff down. Now, in pre-literate cultures, oral tradition was incredibly robust and resilient through song. So often the, the singing would be incredibly accurate and passed down generation after generation, incredibly accurate retelling of events that forge a tribe or an individual, or not never an individual <laughs> tribe or a community's identity and, and maybe a sense of their destiny all passed through oral tradition. And it was robust and resilient, more than we can understand now, because we don't need to use it anymore. And particularly, though, we would understand that song is very easy to learn without sitting down and learning. If you have to learn a text, just written word, it takes a lot of effort. But learning song comes pretty easily with poetry. And therefore, some of those those earlier stories would have been passed down through poetry, which is which is absolutely fantastic so then you start to get early written traditions and you'll see in the bible there are moments moments where moses tells god tells moses for example to write down about a battle that that he's witnessing and and they're winning and then the ten commandments the ten words are written on stone and then you get early collections of those written traditions and 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 they're starting to piece together these are all kind of prophets israelite prophets in the ancient israelite community sensing what god is saying and how he's interpreting what's happening to the community and speaking to them. And then finally, you get what, what's called proto-editions of the biblical books. This will be before the Babylonian crisis, the, the crisis for seven, eight hundred BC, you start to get the prophets and the, their words are started to be written down and formed into kind of, you know, proto-editions of biblical books. And then you go through, if you like, the war of fire, which is the 70-year exile period, and you come out the other side at some point within 100 years, you get the Torah, first five books, the Navim, the Ketuvim, the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, the 24 scrolls of the Hebrew Bible, which form the New Old Testament that Jesus and those who lived in the region of Jerusalem and Judea would have read. And then you get about 250 BC, a translation into Greek, the Greek Septuagint, which would have been in the scrolls of the synagogues across the Greco-Roman empires. So that is a very brief history of the formation of the Hebrew Bible. It's vast and complex. Tim Mackey does some great podcasts on this, my strange Bible podcast. You can, you can also watch him give talks on it, 45 minutes or an hour and a half long on YouTube. If you just Google formation, of the Hebrew Bible, it's really helpful. So then ethics. This is a great question. If how does it work, this idea that everyone's made in the image of God? And I hope I'm reflecting this, the spirit of this question accurately. But yet Israel are a chosen people. How does superiority not get in and they stop loving everyone as if they're made in the image of God? And that is extremely challenging. Uh, this is a great book for those who want to dig deep. A whole book written on that one verse in Genesis 1, because the phrase image of God actually is very rare in the Hebrew Bible. It's just there in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 5. And essentially, then comes Paul brings it in. Jesus is the image of the invisible God into, into New Testament theology. So it's quite it's quite rare that it's it's in there. It's really interesting. So he talks a lot more deeply about the, of the name of. Oh, sorry. Liberating image. J. Richard Middleton. 
And he talks a lot about the Mesopotamian ideology around who the kings being in the image of God and 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 the ancient Near Eastern context, what that would have meant, um, and the generosity and benevolence of, of the Elohim God, the Yahweh Elohim, compared to the sort of the violence of, for example, the Babylonian God Marduk, who splits in half Tiamat, the chaos goddess of the sea, and creates humans then to be slaves. So it's it's really good on the context and it's really good on what that means. Speaking to the ethics of that, I think the Abrahamic blessing is the way to go. And I love how YWAM, I don't know how much they've thought this through, but they certainly, a strap line used to be blessed to be a blessing. And I think that's how you, you navigate both. There, is, there are people who are chosen by God. The Abrahamic peoples are chosen by God. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants, the 12 tribes, the nation of Israel, they are blessed by God in a very specific way to be a blessing to the nations, to reveal God's light to the nations, to recover Eden for the nations. And then those of us who have been grafted into that Abrahamic blessing, as Paul talks about in Romans and Galatians, through Jesus, we're grafted in now to Yeshua's family. We are blessed and we can't deny it. There is a blessing on the people of God. There is a covenantal commitment to faithfulness, to goodness, to however hard life is. God is with us. He's for us. He's blessed us. We live in the blessing of God through Jesus. We enter into the, the blessing of Abraham, the nations. But in order to be a blessing. And that's where it goes wrong if we don't acknowledge we're blessed on the one hand, or if we resist letting the blessing flow out to the nations on the other. And I think that's where we can fall off that that horse and become unethical. The, the plumb line is to acknowledge that the people of God are blessed. God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you and bless all the nations through you. And so we are conduits of God's blessing, his recovery of Eden on the nations. And the ethical way to live, therefore, is to see everyone as the image of God. So I hope that speaks into that question. I'm, I'm sorry that that was so quick. <laughs> um, these are such big questions and I, I want to do them justice. So temple imagery in the garden narrative. Yes, we, we're beginning to see that the, this, this absolutely spiritual deified ancient world is, is, is in the Hebrew Bible as well. But the Hebrew Bible is totally clean and free from any sort of pagan mythology, polytheism, pantheism. It's unbelievably pure in its narrative account of who God is and who we are, but still very much delivers a clear message about the reality of the unseen realm. And we see there are, I, I think, some people would disagree with this, but I think the scholarly consensus is going towards this this direction, that the garden narratives absolutely adopt some of the understanding of, of gardens as sacred space from the Mesopotamian context, trees, rivers. You can imagine if you live in the ancient world, these are places of delight and abundance and fecundity and blessing, and they are seen as sacred, but for the Genesis 2 and 3 narrative, they're a particular kind of sacred space. They're the space where heaven and earth are one, which is the story really of the whole Bible. The, the Genesis 1 narrative, the cosmos is God's temple. It's all sacred space. And then Genesis 2, he pins down this very small human centric moment where Adam and Eve, as we know, Hebrew names given later to two figures, human, humanity and life are placed in this sacred space where there are trees, where there's a river, where there's precious jewels and gold 
where it's probably on a mountain because of the river flowing for it and later references. But the invitation to really see it as a sacred space is an invitation in the way we're designed to read the Hebrew Bible, which has been called Jewish meditation literature, where we read it again and again and again. As we read later, we suddenly really understand the temple imagery in in Genesis 2 and 3. So we get to Moses' tabernacle, and I talked about the the three kind of, you have the outer courtyard, the holy place and the most holy place and the same and and in Solomon's temple. And you see that, ah, that feels like that's a reflection of what's going on in Eden. Eden's a region. Then there's a called delight, literally just given in Hebrew, given a capital E, given a name, delight. Then there's a garden. And then in the middle, there is a tree, tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And then there are also other images, particularly in the Solomon's temple, which look like they're forming mini Edens, micro Edens. So they're looking back to the sacred space of the Garden of Eden. So the menorah is seen as the tree of life. It's like alive with light in, in both Moses' tabernacle and Solomon's temple. There are cherubim, which are, I hate that you could call them cherubs, cherubim, but I think that reminds you of slightly fat Raphael angels that sort of chubby things that sit on things. These are not, these are kind of animal creatures with wings, powerful guardian throne spirits. I'm going to come to them in a minute. They are in Solomon's temple and we know that they were guarding the entrance east of Eden. They all face east. Eden faces east. Moses faces the, the tabernacles all have an, an entrance to the east. There are palm trees, fruit trees, there's flowers and so on in Solomon's temple reflecting back. And in Ezekiel's temple later on there's a river and then right at Uh, in the end. There is no temple in the end at Revelation because God is the temple, but then there's a river and there's trees and so on. So the the imagery of the temple narrative in in Genesis 2 and 3 is, is, is there, but it's also understood through reading later narratives back and understanding the ancient Near East and Mesopotamian understanding of, of gardens and trees and rivers as sacred. Finally, Adam and Eve are given a priestly role because they're given exactly the same phrases that priests are given later on in Moses' tabernacle to work and take care of the garden, a pun on absolutely agricultural gardening work, but also a ministry before God as priests in the temple and tabernacle. I hope that connects in. The holy mountain of God later on, we'll we'll speak about when we get to the problem of evil uh, question, is, is also referenced later as the Garden of Eden. If we look at Psalm 1, there's this beautiful Eden imagery. I mentioned this last week. The one who meditates on the Torah, the law, the, the scriptures day and night is like a tree planted by streams of living water. Their fruit never fails. And that's an Eden image. And it's also an invitation to understand how the Hebrew Bible works that we read and reread and reread. And Tim Mackey calls these re- really interesting, he calls them hyperlinks. So you read through, you know that Adam's been given to serve, work, take care in the garden, read through exactly the same words used to give to the priest. And that re- reframes how you read as a reader perceive what Adam's work is. And that, that happens all the time. So it's not like our way of reading, which is we read beginning, middle, end, and that's the end of the book. It's a rereading, rereading, rereading for a lifetime. And as we do that, we, we come to embody the narrative. We come to be, be mini Eden, sacred spaces, temples where heaven and earth become one in that, in that process of digesting this living word.
So finally, apart from the application question, but finally, we look at the question, very sharp question. Where does the serpent originate and who controls the serpent? Fundamentally, if God created the serpent, does that mean that God has a choice between good and evil? Amazing question. Just quickly, um, for those who want to know more about temple imagery in the garden narratives or anything about the writings of the ancient Near East that feed into the understanding of gardens as sacred spaces and so on, this is this is great. John Walton does a Lost World series, Lost World of Adam and Eve, and he's helpful on perhaps how the ancient reader would have would have read those garden narratives. So this one really is. I've got to come to the history. Do you know what? Before that, I'm going to go back. There was a very good question which I've realised. I must have missed accidentally. Yeah, the history, the history in the Hebrew Bible. So we talked about science and just quickly, are the figures real? Do the, the figures like Moses and Joshua and Gideon, are they real figures or are they helpful illustrations of what it is to be human and what God's like for us to learn from? And Jesus is, if you like, the first real person, historical figure. And after that, um, it's a kind of a, an account of the history of the people of God. This is this was the game changer for me. This book, the Pentateuch as narrative, John H. Sailhammer. He's a follower of Jesus. Everyone I'm quoting today is followers of Jesus. I have quoted other uh, scholars in the last three series, um, three talks that that have different perspectives on faith. But I thought today to be really helpful, I would get people who are like walking in the same walk as we are. And essentially, they all are historical figures. All these people existed in time. There were events where they happened. We talked about the formation of the Hebrew Bible. Then there were oral traditions about them. Then at some point, it was written down. Then it was written into a collection and then and so on. And the divine inspiration is is, is really woven through the whole thing because the Holy Spirit is weaving over a very long period of time, about a thousand years of a vast and complex production process. Yes, they did exist in history. And but they what they're doing in the in the writing of the Bible is there. And this is what I've come to this phrase after reading and listening and thinking. So biblical narrative is the literary representation of historical events in such a way as to communicate the author's message. So there's a Gideon figure in history. There's a Joshua figure. There's a Moses figure. And then later, when they're finally written down, it's written down in such a way as to communicate a meaning. The meaning being, and I've said this again and again and again, humans are flawed and we need a Mashiach, a Messiah, an anointed one to fill in the figure of what it is to be truly human that's revealed in Genesis 1. This isn't the time to go into other ancient sacred texts that write about the same people and they're not flawed. So this is an interpretation of the human condition in, but absolutely based in, in historical figures and real events passed down through oral tradition, written tradition, and then collections, and then finally put into the Hebrew scrolls, which are translated into the Greek, and then become the, the format, the foundation of our single volume Bibles that we access in English today. I hope that helps. Sorry if that's too quick. But yeah, Pentateuch's narrative is absolutely brilliant on, on understanding. It's the way it's written about, which communicates the author's message. Great. So just a little one now. Where does the serpent originate 
and who controls the serpent. Fundamentally, if God created the serpent, does that mean that God has a choice between good and evil? So this, uh, we talked about, I briefly mentioned day four and day six, the rulers of the hosts above are spiritual beings. They are called sons of Elohim. They're the divine council in Job and in other places. And then in day six, we have human beings who are given authority to rule over the created world. So there are these two realms, the seen realm and the unseen realm. And in the garden narratives and and in Genesis 1 narrative, essentially they're one, but they have different areas of jurisdiction. So when we talk about the seen and unseen realm, we're trying to use language and categories to explain a world that is perceived so differently to ours, which is everything is spiritual. So they wouldn't, for example, understand natural laws, like if an apple fell out of my hand and fell to the floor, we would define that in terms of things like the law of gravity. In the ancient world, it was the gods that enabled it to fall and kept it going and then it fell, or God, Elohim. So everything is spiritual in the ancient world. God cre- and, and for the Israelites particularly, the prophets who wrote the Hebrew Bible, Elohim, the supreme unparalleled Yahweh, Elohim, creates everything and sustains everything all the time. He is the energizing, life-giving, loving, kind, generous, benevolent energy behind the universe. And it's really important when we read these texts that we kind of have that understanding. And there's also, he has a divine council, as it's been called really helpfully. And at this point, we're going to reference this book, which I think is kind of probably this man's life work. He's a Hebrew scholar, Michael S. Heiser. I think he reads other ancient dead languages as well. He does Sorry, The Unseen Realm by Michael S. Heiser. He does a Naked Bible podcast, which is really, it's accessible. He's pretty feisty because he comes from quite a conservative kind of Protestant tradition and basically had a moment in, in teaching. I think he was like even, you know, teaching Hebrew where he suddenly came to passages in the Psalms and was like, these are all being translated. It, it, it feels like the English translations have translated out the unseen realm because we don't know what to do with it and all those difficult passages because we don't know what to do with them in our hyper-materialistic worldview, which is even influenced translation. So really interesting journey personally, and he's produced a number of books of which this is probably the, you know, this is the kind of most recent updated one called The Unseen Realm, where he deals with all the complex issues around gods and Elohim and spiritual beings in the Hebrew Bible. And he helpfully gives this this phrase that the divine council. So God has this divine council that's mentioned in in the beginning of Job. He, the heavenly host, the stars, they're all um, spiritual beings. And then humans have our created domain, the scene realm. And he translate. He has a good chapter on the serpent, the snake, which he says is a good translation that it, it was a serpent or snake, Nahash. But it's like a triple pun on two other words in Hebrew shining one it's close to a word which means a shining one and also close to a word which means a diviner or one who brings omens and in essentially he then remember about rereading and rereading and rereading so you have the genesis 2 3 narratives you have this kind of serpent who could be like a shining one or a diviner some kind of omen bringer in the in the genesis 3 narrative and then as a reader you get through to isaiah 14 12 to 13 and Ezekiel 28, 14 to 17, you have two kings of Tyre and Babylon and they are proud and their hearts uh, are kind of turned away from God. They think they're gods. And then suddenly this reference to a being in Eden on both of them, the holy mountain of God, this beautiful um, cherubim with this guardian 
who, who walked on the fiery stones of Eden in the, in the jewels of Eden, but his heart became proud and he fell to the ground. And in reading that, it, the, there's a trigger with the, with the references to the Garden of Eden, the Holy Mountain of God, back to the Genesis 3 narrative for the reader to, to think, OK, this isn't animal. This isn't an animal. This is actually a divine being. This is this is a spiritual being who who is actually come out of that position of delegated authority under God and is in rebellion. This, they they have resisted whatever that that delegated authority of hosting on day four is. Something has happened, and this spiritual being is not in alignment reflecting God's delegated authority of Elohim over the unseen realm. This spiritual being is in resistance or rebellion against God. So that's why Eve has no concern talking to this being. It's totally normal to her. There's no fear. It's not strange because she's talking to a creature that is a spiritual being. Now, again, I found this really helpful, but we have words like seraphim and we just call them seraphim. The Hebrew, it's again, it's a Hebrew word with a capital S. Seraph is actually a pun. It's two meanings. The seraphim that worship the throne of Elohim, of Yahweh Elohim in Isaiah 6, when he sees, he sees he's filled with a, a vision of God and his temple and the holiness and seraphim are worshipping. And seraph actually means snake and also means burning one, because I think the link being if a snake bites you, it burns. So these are creatures worshipping in the, in the vision of Isaiah with wings. So human spirit, spiritual beings that come in human form never have wings. The whole angels with wings is a completely bizarre medieval myth. It's spiritual beings come in human form as humans. Or there are animal-like creatures that have wings and there's another realm, another level of spiritual beings. So you have a spiritual being in the garden narrative, who is a, is, can be translated absolutely serpent snake, but are kind of a shining spiritual being that basically says to Eve, did God really say? And starts to sow the doubt of God's goodness as to who she is, who they're made to be, to be rulers and, and leads her or, or it tends to deceive her to the, that full narrative we've talked about to see something tove and take which we know is the problem of the human condition, is seeing something tove that's not for us to take. It's for our benefit, but it will be someone else's cost, something beautiful, something good, and to take it. So evil isn't some malevolent force out there. Evil is what happens when we transgress. And it's a really helpful distinction that, I think, so God, the question is, does God ever have a choice between good and evil? We know God in human form in Jesus was tempted. And it says later in Hebrews, he was tempted in every way yet was what's in. But because he never transgressed, he, he in a sense never is anything other than good because he never goes there. He never does to- take something tove, beautiful and good for himself at his own benefit, someone else's cost. He is just incomparably, generously good all the time. Why the Nahash, the serpent, the spiritual being, could, going back to that question, could rebel and resist is because he genuinely gives delegated authority to created beings. He genuinely gives delegated authority. He doesn't control. It says who controls the serpent. There is no control of God. He genuinely releases humanity in the seen realm and spiritual beings in the unseen realm 
to rule on his behalf or to resist. And this one resisted. So there is no evil. It says there's no raw, no wickedness ever found in Yahweh Elohim. He is totally good, perfect, beautiful. There is no, he, he never has and never will go beyond the character of who he is. Which is so inspiring, so reassuring and so comforting. We learned that in, in the Genesis 1 narrative. But in the Genesis 2 and 3 narratives, we learned that humans are free. And here we can see also spiritual beings are. They to not rule the unseen realm in alignment with Yahweh Elohim's purposes. However, there is a whole narrative arc in the Bible about how God deals with them. He calls them to account just as he calls humans to account. So there is justice, there's protection, there's God's providence and God moving everything towards a, a beautiful and glorious completion. He is never outdone by the freedom that he gives his created beings. He, in the end, will still make a way to a greater and glorious and more hopeful future for us in the, in the world, in a world which is very much populated as well with an unseen realm. So I hope those have been helpful responses. I I know I'm going to have at least one conversation with someone who'd like to ask a question more on a one-to-one. And of course, that's that's definitely there as well, if that's an easier way to process and articulate any questions that arise. Please, yeah, get in touch if there's anything else that, that kind of comes up out of this. But I think for the moment that that final we can land on that that final practical application. I love this question. I think the most important question for me today is how does this Genesis narrative transform my walk and talk with those that my purpose is to be good news to? Do I really know the significance God has placed in me and his plans to use me to bring about his kingdom of earth? Firstly, and this is something I've been picking up over the last few months, is is we tend to have a rush to practical application. We don't really like the idea of going into something about how mythology in the ancient Near East, if it, if it isn't pertinent to my life now. There are many reasons for that, not least our time and our attention is crowded. It's intense to get, give time to anything. We want to make the time that we give to anything really work, really be fruitful and productive and meaningful. But I think the lesson I'm learning from this is not to rush to practical application, but to read and reread and think and process in community, to pray things through, to find the difficult passages, to wrestle with them. And we find that the word, as as the, the person who asked the temple imagery question, the word, the tree of life, it starts to forge life in us. Over time, we start to see more clearly how the world is. We start to live more in alignment with Yahweh, Elohim's ways. We start to understand more how the unseen realm working and what principalities and powers, as Paul later calls them, are in operation. That said, I think there are some things, some takeaways. So sit, sit with the word, just sit with it and allow it to read us, allow it to shape us and change us. And we will find the application flows. Also, I think there are some learnings from this. The first one is humans are significant. This is really contested culturally at the moment. 
that humans are significant because it's very hard to interpret a hyper materialistic how obsessed where there's an obsession with the materiality of our origins to say that people kept alive by a dying star who are formed by a chemical accident are significant it's very hard to make that leap and i've heard a lot of the the justice movements recently um that those that don't believe in god have to say quotes like there is no justice there's only us because you can't argue for justice if there is no god so humans are significant because god does exist and we are free and we are accountable which is the message of genesis 1 to 11 in other words there is justice because god exists secondly i think we need to then draw away really really respect the understanding of the unseen realm that the biblical authors give us that still stands today and nothing in our culture can speak clearly into our culture craves an unseen realm if you look at our cultural imagination if you look at the the most best-selling books if you look at them the best the most like watched and highest grossest grossing movies they all are two realms whether it's harry potter or marvel or star wars you know the lord of the rings all of these are operating there it's a two-realm narrative going on in our cultural imagination we crave it we want it we know at some level that there should be it i even would say that's where it's that vacuum of not having clarity of thinking in our public discourse around the unseen realm that that is a vacuum to suck in conspiracy theories i think it's because we know deep down something else is going on beyond a materialistic reading of the universe And if we don't clearly articulate what the biblical narrative is saying, what really is going on in the unseen realm, we will be taken aside into kind of escapism or worse still into believing things which are not true, believing conspiracy theories, which just aren't true and they're not real. What is real is an unseen realm. So I think that's really another takeaway is to respect the everything spiritual worldview of the biblical authors. And then, really, the final takeaway is the invitation in the garden. There's an invitation to walk with God in life. There's an invitation to have wisdom, to see the world through his eyes, to define Tov and Ra, good and evil, through the way he sees the world. And that is a way that leads to life. And that is something we can do right now. We can say, God, I want that way. I want that way of life. I don't want to be constantly tripping up, trying to make it life work for myself, trying to see something tove, something beautiful, and take it for myself and transgress. I don't want to live in that cycle anymore. I want to live in a way that, that will allow that to be crucified, but walk past that and take hold of the tree of life and live with you in your wisdom, in your ways forever. Thanks, Alice. Well, why don't we finish with by praying that and uh, praying that we'll say, we'll say to God, whether this is our first time, we've done this many times before, we choose to take from the tree of life and we recognise you're the one who gives us um, wisdom and we, we seek your wisdom rather than um, choosing to eat from the other tree. So let's pray that, shall we? Lord, we stand here now or sit here wherever we are and um, and we say we agree we recognize that you are the, the tree of life and we and we turn ourselves to you now and we say we want to eat from your tree we want to uh, follow your tree we want to follow jesus the, the, 
the Son of God. And we ask you and we invite you to shape our thinking, our way of seeing the world, our way of living, according to your wisdom. We say yes to that. We ask you to take us on that path. Amen. Great. I, I think also it'd be good to mention, so there's the Bible Project resources. There's also Biblios, which Alice has been developing over the last 10 years and uh, launched during covid and it's and Biblios, if you're not aware of it, BibliosAdventure.com um, is a product that Alice has built over many years to help people to get into the Bible in community. Uh, lockdown has changed that a fair bit, and there's a new version going to be coming out in the next few months um, of Biblios. And uh, but this is a, a great resource where where Bible Project helps you to listen to podcasts, watch videos. Um, the aim for Biblios is that you um, is that you discover the Bible and how it all fits together and what it means in the context of community. Ideally, around a table, there's card games, sort of top trump type stuff. There's little videos which Alice has we've filmed in Israel and around the world on location uh, to kind of give you a sense of where it all happened. And um, and then there's maps and there's various little activities and it's an interactive way. Um, it's it's great if you're not a reader, uh, but it's great if you are a reader as well. So uh, that's that's Biblios, and, and you can have a look at the website there, and there's a new version of that coming out in the next few months. Um, so this, this, it is, it is, I think it's an exciting time to the church. We're so grateful for the Bible Project and Tim Mackey, what they do for that. They bring so much uh, great stuff. And it's and, and personally, I just love the fact that we're not, we haven't got to feel this place of some sort of fighting science. You know, in my early years as a Christian, I felt I had to sort of defend God against science, and but, but that's not what we're called to do. Uh, and, and, and this has liberated us from that, hasn't it? To appreciate um, both, both, um, and they're not contradictory. Great. So we'll finish there. And um, and as we and, and earlier in the in the comments, you'll see that uh, we've got links to our fortnightly email, which has got details about um, what's going on in the church. Uh, and particularly, we want to highlight one church one day. So this Tuesday is our twenty four hours of praying uh, for the city, joining in the momentum of many others, fifty five or so churches that are praying uh, for Bristol right now. Um, and then there's our um, afternoon outside church here at four o'clock at Hope Chapel. Great.